And so here, the words of Jesus, uh, as he ends his biggest teaching section in all of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." All right, in our modern-day church world, we have Bible stories and we have passages of Scripture uh, that are more popular than others. Right? We've got some texts, some parts of the Bible that we go back to time and time again because they have such a special meaning for us. Uh, for example, if I said, for God so loved the world, you would know that comes from where? John 3.16. Uh, if I said, the Lord is my shepherd, that's from where? Psalm 23. We know those, right? Uh, most of us, you could tell me the story of Jonah and the whale. Uh, you could tell me the story of David and Goliath. You could tell me Daniel and the lion's den. And you could tell me all of those stories a whole lot better than you could tell me Ezra's confession or Sanballat's opposition to Nehemiah. Anyone know that story? You're ready to... Okay, just checking. Uh, or uh, Joash repairing the temple. Okay, even though those stories occupy the same amount of space in Scripture as the other stories, we know some parts of Scripture a lot better than we know others. Okay, but in Jesus' day, in the first century, the most popular biblical stories and texts were different for them than they are for us. Okay, they did VBS very differently than we do, right? They had different stories that they used for theirs than we do. All right? They loved Malachi and Isaiah more than we ever will. Uh, the way we all know Psalm 23, they all knew Psalm 22. But what may have been the single most popular book, the book that everybody was reading, the one everyone was talking about in Jesus' day, the one that they had their kids memorized growing up, was actually the book of Daniel. Okay? And that may sound weird to us, okay, but I want you to think about it. If you're an oppressed people, if life is not going well for you, if pagans are running the country that you're supposed to be running and you need a word of encouragement, what better source of encouragement than the book of Daniel? You think about when Daniel was written. Daniel was written when the people of Israel were off in exile, and Daniel is the prime example for how to be a person of faith when the world is upside down and you're off where you're not supposed to be and the pagans are in charge. Okay? And you think about the primary purpose of the book of Daniel, the entire main theology of that book is that in the end, we win. It may look like the pagans are in charge, it may look like the people of God are, are not going to ever get there, but if we will just remain faithful, if we will keep doing the things that we're supposed to do, if we'll keep saying our prayers, keep putting our faith in the one true God of all creation, in the end, we win, Right? Daniel uh, is one of only two characters in all of Scripture that nothing bad is ever said about them, right? If you want to learn how to model your life on somebody when you're going through that kind of a heartache and that kind of trial, it's Daniel. Hey, Daniel's a great book. Wait faithfully for the day when God will act and you will be vindicated. Now, uh, their favorite story out of the book of Daniel 
the story that everyone was talking about in Jesus' day wasn't Daniel in the lion's den. It wasn't the, the fiery furnace or the stories that we know and love. The most popular story, the one that they could recite by memory, was Daniel chapter 2. Right? And you remember Daniel 2? Three people say yes. All right. Um, it's a story of the statue. You remember that story? Right? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the king of the entire world, he has a dream, and he goes to all his wise men and says, I want you guys to interpret the dream. And the wise men say, that's great. What was the dream? He says, I'm not telling. Right? Um, but Daniel can know the dream. Right? Daniel knows the dream. Daniel comes back and he says, okay, here is the dream that you dreamed, and here's what it means. It means that you, O oh great king of Babylon, you are that great head of gold, but after you is coming another kingdom not quite as good as yours. It's going to be a kingdom of silver. After that is a kingdom of bronze. After that's a kingdom of iron. But then the part that we really care about is what happens after that kingdom of iron. Because you remember what happens at the end of the story is there's going to be a rock cut out of the mountain— that rock will destroy the statue and fill the entire world. Right? So what are we waiting for? The rock. Right? Notice the end of Daniel's interpretation. Uh, 2 verse 44 and 45, he says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So, why in the world is this the most popular story in Jesus' day? Why could little kids recite Daniel 2, 44 and 45 the way that our kids can recite John 3, 16? Okay, because think about where we're at in world history. Over the last several centuries, we watched the Babylonians give way to the Persians. We watched the Greeks conquer the Persians. Now the Romans have taken over the world from the Greeks. And we have watched each layer of this statue come into power, dominate the entire world. And what is it time for now? What are we waiting for? It is time for the rock to come out of the mountain and set up a kingdom which will fill the world. Everybody knows Daniel too. So let me ask, where do you want to build your future? Where do you want to put your foundation? Where do you want to set all of your hopes? Do you want to build your house on the sand of those crushed kingdoms? or on the rock which will endure forever. I think when Jesus closes his sermon uh, with the parable of the wise and foolish builders, I think he's reaching back to a couple of different Old Testament images that his audience would have immediately known. I think the primary one he's reaching back to is Daniel chapter 2. I think he's making a messianic claim with this story, saying the real rock, the real foundation, the real place you want to build your life, it's on the teachings of me. It's the words of Jesus. Um, I think another place he's reaching back to in the Old Testament is from our scripture reading this morning that Dave read to us. Right? You caught that last of those Proverbs, the difference between a wise man and a foolish man. Right? I think that Jesus is intentionally tying these things together, and he's saying it is all happening in him. Jesus is claiming that to follow his teachings, to put into practice the words of Jesus, is to build your life on the rock. Okay, this is a messianic claim. 
Uh, Jesus is declaring that the kingdom of God is here. And if you want to be a part of it, it does not mean following the teachings of the scribes or the Pharisees or the, the, the philosophies of the day that the Greeks were, were spouting off. Okay, It means following the words of Jesus. If we do that, we will be part of a kingdom that will never end and fills the entire world forever. That works. All right, one other facet of this uh, that I think would have been readily apparent to Jesus' first audience, but I think that we can miss out on it because we live so much longer later, is this. Uh, The Jews commonly referred to the temple in Jerusalem as the house of God built on the rock. Because okay, you think about it, the temple sits on this big rock right at Mount Zion, um, and that's where the most impressive building that any of them would have ever seen was, and they knew that when God came in his glory, that was going to be where his house was. And Jesus is saying, the real rock is not in Jerusalem, it's not the temple. In fact, later he's going to preach in this book of Matthew about how that building is going to be destroyed. Because God doesn't live in just a building. Where does the holy God live? Among those who follow these teachings of Jesus. That's the real rock. Do you want to build your life on the rock, which is eternal? Uh, It is not the temple. It is the teachings of Jesus. All right, one more uh, sentence of our text this morning, and then we're going to hit application pretty hard. This is verse 28 of Matthew 7. It says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. Um, Back when I was in graduate school, uh, right after Rachel and I got married, um, I wrote a paper for one of my classes. It was on Hebrews chapter 9, which was about the sacrificial system in the tabernacle. And I titled it, Sacrifice in Hebrews 9. It's intense. Because it's... Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I thought that was clever. All right. Uh, it, It was funny. All right. Anyway, um... I got that paper back, and I got a B on my paper, all right? And the professor said, not because of the title. Don't worry, wasn't that? He said, the title was clever, but your paper could use a little work. Here's the work you could use on your paper. Um, He said, for 20 pages, I spent all my time telling him, here's what all the scholars say about this text. He says, you never really got around to telling me, what do you think about this text? All right, and there's a difference there. Um, So what was going on in Jesus' day, the way that they interpreted the Old Testament, is the rabbis would sit around and they would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so from centuries ago said this about this text, and Rabbi so-and-so said this other thing about this text, and then they would debate on who had the better catalog of rabbis to support whatever point they were trying to make. You notice what Jesus does throughout the Sermon on the Mount is he takes Old Testament teaching and he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't care what Rabbi so-and-so said. He says, I tell you this. That's authority. Okay? Jesus doesn't care about the centuries of interpretation on it. He cares about teaching us what the heart of God is, and he can do that because he was God. All right. Uh, two points of interpretation, or, I mean, two points of application for us this morning. What do we do with this text? How does this change the way that we're supposed to live our lives? Um, if you're taking notes, write these down. Here's number one. Number one is that the words of Jesus are about doing. Okay, the words of Jesus are about doing. He says, whoever hears these words of mine and what? Puts them into practice, right? Does them is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. 
You know, I tell my boys things to do all the time. I feel like most of what I do as a parent is just telling my kids what to do. Um, you know, go upstairs. Don't put that in your mouth. Turn out the lights. Get back in your bed. Quit hitting your brother. Stop saying potty words. Have a great day at school. Be a helper. I said don't hit your brother. Right. Uh, one other thing about little boys, um, and it may be true of little girls too, but I have no experience there, but little boys have lots of ideas that they think are really good ideas, and my job as a dad is to tell them that's not a good idea. Right? Right, Luke? Yeah, all right. Now, am I most interested in my boys studying my words, memorizing my words, having debates about my words, or am I interested in them just doing what I told you to do? You see where I'm going with this. Okay, and do not hear me wrong. I am interested, I am fully invested in studying the words of Jesus. Uh, I think we need to spend more time studying the words of Jesus. I'm a big fan of memorizing scripture. Um, I think we should probably do more of that than what we do, and with our kids especially, right? Um, I had to memorize a lot of scripture when I was a kid growing up, and I think it was really good for me. I think we need to memorize God's word, okay? But all of that is completely worthless unless we actually do what God's telling us to do, right? Jesus says the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. All right, uh, one of the things that Matthew does, and he does it really cleverly throughout his gospel, um, is he keeps showing us how Jesus is the new Moses. Okay? Um, and one of the ways that he does this, uh, so Moses in the book of Exodus, he goes up on the mountain and receives the teachings from God and then gives them to the people. What is Jesus doing here in Matthew 5-7? through He's on the mountain telling people, here's the teachings from God. Okay? Uh, Moses primarily does his teaching in what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There's five big teaching sections of Moses in your Bible, and that's what the Jews lived by for their lives. Um, and Jesus, in his big teaching sections in Matthew, guess how many sermons he gives? Five, right? He's in ma very intentional ways. Matthew writes his gospel to show us that Jesus is the new Moses. Okay? Moses took his people out of slavery and brought them to the promised land. What's Jesus here to do? Same thing, right? Jesus is the new Moses. Uh, and one of the things that Jesus and Moses have in common is that all of the teachings of Moses and the teachings of Jesus, they are extremely practical. It's here's how I actually want you to live. Okay, here's how to treat your neighbor. Here's how you're supposed to treat your wife. Here's how to think about your money. Here's how to live in the land that I'm giving you. Okay, and so I think contrary to what some famous preachers said in the past, you may have heard this before somewhere else, preachers used to say that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was giving us an ideal that we could never actually get to, and that it's supposed to show us just how fallen we are as people because we can't actually live out all the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, I think contrary to that, Jesus actually intends us to do this. He really does want us to live anger-free and lust-free, and where our word means what we say it should mean, where we actually treat other people the way we would like to be treated, etc., etc., etc. I think this is in extremely practical teaching sections of Jesus. I think Jesus really does expect us to do these things he's just told us to do for the last three chapters. That work? Okay. Number two. You will, oh, I put that back there. All right, number two. You will go back to your foundation, okay? 
Uh, part of the image that Jesus uses here is that a storm comes and it hits these two different houses. Okay, we just sang about it. The rains come up, the floods, or the rains came down, the floods came up. And the one on the rock does fine, and the one on the sand doesn't. Right? I think in the metaphor that Jesus is using here in this parable, we are to assume that otherwise the houses are equal. Okay, if you were to look at the houses from the outside, they're both equally nice. Uh, the houses themselves are probably equally well constructed. Um, I'm sure the house on the sand is just as nice as the house on the rock. Right? And maybe I'm pushing the metaphor too far, but I'm pretty sure it's a whole lot easier to build a house on sand than it is on rock. It would be really easy to level sand out and get a nice level plot to build your house. It takes a whole lot more work to build a house on rock than it ever would on sand. The difference in the two houses only becomes apparent when? When the storm comes, right? So, at some point in your life, another storm is going to come along. And I say another because I'm assuming you've already had some storms come along in your life. And if you have very much longer to live at all, you're going to have another one come along at some point too, right? Uh, life tends to be a series of one storm coming along after another. Uh, you're going to get a hard diagnosis from a doctor. Your family's going to have something break somewhere. Some sin or addiction is going to entangle you. Uh, your finances are going to take a hit. Okay, life is a series of storms. Some are bigger than others. And when you hit that storm, is it time then to say, okay, now I need to start getting my life right and build it on the rock? No, it's too late at that point, right? Uh, the storm reveals what kind of foundation you have already built before that storm ever came along. Okay, and when you hit that storm, when that storm hits you, you will revert to what you know and what's comfortable to you. Uh, so what I'm thinking about is back 11 years ago, almost, uh, when my oldest was first born, he was in the hospital for a lot of time, um, and things were really touch and go for a long time. We didn't know whether he was going to make it or not, and by any definition, that was a storm that hit our lives. Um, and after we got through the hardest parts of that, there were several people that really encouraged Rachel and I and said, man, you guys did a really good job leaning into your church family. You did a really good job letting this church family support you as you went through all that. That was a really good thing that you did. Okay, now, here's the secret about that. Uh, the reason that we did such a good job leaning into our faith and our church family wasn't because we are such awesome, mature people of faith. Okay, the reason we did that is because that was our only option. We didn't have anything else. We didn't have any other friends or family in the area. The only people we knew were those church people. That was the one place we could go. That was the only foundation we had built. And so when you get into a storm in life, it will reveal whatever foundation you've got. Right? When the storms come in your life, you will go back to what's familiar. You will go back to your foundation. So that begs the question, what kind of relationships should I be fostering in my life right now? Okay, how confident am I right now in my familiarity with the teachings of Jesus? Because okay, I can't put them into practice in my life if I don't even know what they are, right? How good a student of Scripture am I? Okay, am I cultivating the spiritual disciplines in my life, and am I making God an ever-increasing part of my life? Okay, the big question here is, what is my foundation? Does that work? Uh, now, I cannot preach this sermon 
without using the one illustration that every preacher uses for this text. Um, so if you've ever heard anyone ever preach on this, you've probably seen this picture before, because um, it, it, it just, it is this text, okay? All right, back in 1174, the Italian architect, uh, Bonanno Pisano, began work on what would become his most famous project. He wanted to make an independently standing bell tower for the cathedral in the city of Pisa. Uh, the tower was to be eight stories, 185 feet tall. And after they began construction, they ran into one really small problem. Uh, the builders quickly realized that the soil on one side of the structure was significantly softer than they had anticipated. The foundation was far too shallow to support a building that was 185 feet tall. And so sure enough, before long, the whole structure began to tilt and continued to tilt until finally the builders realized it and nothing could be done to make the Tower of Pisa straight again. It took them 176 years to build the Tower of Pisa. And in that time, they tried a bunch of stuff to compensate for the tilt. Uh, they tried to increase the foundation after they'd already started building, which you really can't do, and there's a metaphor in there somewhere, right? Uh, they tried to change the angle on some of the higher floors. You see it kind of has a little bit of a curve to it. They thought if they could start tilting the, f the higher floors, that would help. Uh, but you can't straighten up your life if it's on a tilted foundation. There's that, that works, right? And the tower has stood for over 800 years, but it still leans 18 feet off of center, all because it didn't have the right foundation. Okay, it doesn't matter how nice a house looks on the outside if the foundation isn't what it ought to be. Okay, so how's your foundation? All right, at this time in our service, we are going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, during the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, this is a time in our service where we as the church want to be here for you. We would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that is going on in your life. Uh, we would love to share with you more about what it means to make Jesus the foundation of your life. Um, and so during the singing of this song, you can come forward and talk to us, and we can talk about those things. Uh, before we sing that song, though, I would like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.